I'll dismiss you. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to invite a friend of mine up. Uh, some of you guys uh, remember this uh, gentleman. Uh, before I invite him up, I want to say uh, Jonathan Walker's legacy lives on in Homer, Alaska. Um, you, you have seen over the years, and this is unfortunate. In fact, this is one of my great heartbreaks in my life. You have seen people in ministry and in ministry leadership who couldn't get along. You've seen that, right? Um, not only are Jonathan and I still in a good relationship, I consider Jonathan to be one of my best confidants on the planet. Uh, he's been such a gift to me personally as a friend, and I'm always glad to have him back. I don't know why I'm getting choked up, but would you guys welcome up Jonathan Walker. I just want you to know, I got choked up for you just now in front of everyone. I, I know why, too, because you were waiting for a hug. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, yeah, feel that. Feel that, Aaron. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was good. And that was still two seconds too long, but that was good. I'm going to pray for you. So we're actually jumping into a new series this morning. We're going to look at four pictures that the Bible offers us for understanding salvation. And actually, you're taking on what I think is one of the most challenging ones. Certainly the most challenging to say. <laughs> That's right. So let me pray for you and we'll jump in. God, I do thank you for Jonathan, for his, uh, the gift that you have placed in him for our benefit. Um, I thank you for his friendship, his investment in this church, and uh, the gift that that still is for us. I pray this morning for open ears, open hearts to receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I sometimes assume this goes without saying, but I know it doesn't. Um, uh, Aaron is not only one of my best, I think the word he used was confidants, but he's also one of my favorite hugging friends. Um, to watch his neck turn red from right here up into his cheeks, it's a beautiful thing, Aaron. <laughs> um, this is the part that goes without saying, I, I tend to think, but um, Kitri and I, all three of our girls, Caleb and even our dog, miss you terribly. It really is a privilege to be here and with you, and um, I think I do know why Aaron assigned me this particular topic, and it is because I hate using this word in a sermon. There's only four places in the New Testament it shows up, fortunately. Uh, propitiation. Go ahead, say it ten times fast out loud. Like, it's just a weird word. It's not just as a weird word. Nobody has any idea what it means, right? Uh, now, we're staying out at Carrie and Kathy's out in the river bottom, primarily because it's the same temperature there as it is in Wasilla, so we didn't have to acclimate or anything. Um, no, because their grandma and grandpa are our kids, and we just love being with them. But we're staying out there. Kerry, of course, you know, did his homework. He got out his strongest concordance. Apparently, they still have those in print. Um, but um, he got, you know, that out and began looking up the word, and so we've had uh, much intriguing conversation over the past few days. Well, we're going to dive in, and over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at um, four pictures of salvation. And it's actually, I think, critical that we begin here in this particular one. We're going to be looking at redemption, reconciliation, justification, which are all easy to say, and propitiation, which I'm going to say as many times as I can in one sermon. 
today. You ready? Good, two of you are. That's awesome. Are you ready? Okay. Here we go anyway. Burning anger. Uh, Maybe you've heard the comments before. Maybe you've wrestled with this yourself. But I find that many people outside of church circles are somewhat offended by the idea of God's wrath being poured out. I think it's because we think of the wrath of God in terms of like petty offense, that God is angry and you made him angry somehow and he can't wait to unleash his wrath on you. And so they have this view of God's wrath that ultimately, from a Christian perspective, God was so angry um, that he would not be happy until he was able to kill his own son. (laughs) Somebody in the front row just went, (gasps) yeah, if you know the story, right, that, that ultimately God's wrath, and the language we would use to describe it, is satisfied by the sacrifice of his son. Well, what kind of God is that? Have you heard these sorts of arguments before? I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding, really, um, of what wrath actually is from God's vantage point. In fact, the word wrath appears about 212 times in the scriptures, which is more times than mercy appears or compassion appears or a whole bunch of other words that we really like appear in the scriptures. And when we hear the word wrath, for most of us, there's some sort of human experience that is associated with it. What is it for you? Is it um, a parent, or maybe it's a drill sergeant, or maybe it's a parent who's a drill sergeant, or, or maybe it's um, a spouse who has no control over their rage and anger, or maybe it's a, a boss um, uh, at work, or maybe it's a spouse who's a boss. Uh, it, I think about commercial fishing. Yeah, never mind. I just know that it's the grace of the Lord that many commercial fishermen come into relationship with Jesus at some point in their life, right, Jim Tut? Yeah, yeah, that that transformation, that conversion, but it's amazing to me, when I think about wrath, it's almost always in light of someone who I experienced wrath from in my lifetime, which is very different than God's description of wrath. I can remember when I was a kid, um, and you're going to find this totally shocking, but I drove my grandmother crazy. Like, I mean, I thought I was a pretty good kid. Apparently, I have ADHD. I'm on medication now. It's all better. But, but like, when I was a little kid, I drove my grandmother crazy. I drove her so crazy. I have vivid memories at her apartment in Memphis of her chasing me around the apartment with a tennis racket. <laughs> like, Come back here. <laughs> Not a chance. You're old. I'm fast. But she was so angry. She just grabbed whatever weapon she could find, and she was going to let me have it if she could get her hands on me. That's the sort of picture that comes to mind for me when I think about wrath. And for many of us, um, wrath and discipline went hand in hand because often they were expressed simultaneously in our lives. Here's the funny thing about wrath. Wrath can be expressed towards almost anything. 
You could actually express wrath towards an inanimate object. Maybe you have had at some point in your house a hole in the wall. Um, I, I have a door. Um, I'm not saying that like I'm full of rage or anything, but I was trying to get a chair through the hallway and this door was open that goes to one of our little closets and, and the door would just not close. And so, you know, of course, what you do is just shove the chair as hard as you can so the door will close and now you have a hole in it that you have to repair. Like, I was angry at the door. I expressed my wrath over a situation or towards an inanimate object, but it can also be expressed just as easily towards that idiot who cut you off in traffic. Here's the deal. Human wrath is often about making myself feel better by expressing my anger. Human wrath is often about making myself feel better by expressing my anger. Often you hear people say, um, I'm just brutally honest. I, I just call it like it is. I say it like I see it. I'm a black and white person. A lot of people really pride themselves on that. And what I've discovered over the years is that often people who love brutal honesty love brutality more than they love honesty. They just want to express themselves. And I can remember um, uh, when Caleb was first born and God had really delivered me from some significant anger issues in my life when I first came to the Lord around 19 years old. And, but I can remember thinking, I am never going to discipline my son in anger or to appease my anger. If I'm going to discipline my son, then it's got to be for his good and not my satisfaction. Because I don't want him to confuse those two things because the Lord actually disciplines those he loves. He chastens us. But wrath in the scriptures is actually reserved for a really specific group of people. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, this church who is a brand new emerging church, and Paul is writing his very first letter to churches, and this church is experiencing persecution but he wants them to understand something about the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because God's wrath isn't about personal punishment, it's actually about the presence of evil in the world. Often God is described as though he's harboring these small, petty offenses. Why is sin such a big deal to God? Why will his wrath be poured out on evil in the world? And why will there be the destruction of people who, by all merits, should have been relatively good people? And maybe a way to ask the question is like this. um, How much evil would you like to have in the world? How much is too much? Is just a little bit of evil left in the world okay with you? Maybe this will help. Um, Since I already told you where we were staying, I guess the gig is up, Carrie and Kathy. Who would like a nice, clear, cool cup of water? Anybody? I certainly would. Mmm. Refreshing. I asked this of my daughter last night. I said, if I went and got you a glass of water, crystal clear, nice and cool, would you like it? She's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd really like that. 
I said, well, what if I took some of these rat droppings that I found out at Carrie and Kathy's? Oh, those do smell like ammonia. And just put them in the water. I can see them. I can miss them. I don't have to actually drink them. And they haven't dissolved yet. Anybody want to drink? No. I think it's just good still. Tastes fine. Actually, it tastes a little bit like chocolate chips because that's what those actually (laughs) are. But like, how many would you want in your water and still want to drink it? I mean, how much evil should God allow to be left in the world, in the perfect world, when he makes all things new, when he redeems all things? How much evil should he leave in the world? God is fully, and you need to understand this, he is fully committed to eradicating evil from the world. And his wrath is intended to be leveled against Evil. God is fully committed to the eradication of evil because of its effects in the world. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it sort of makes this distinction for us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He's not against the men. He's against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness. He's against the evil that is allowed to be expressed through the hearts and lives of men. Which brings me to bloodbath. In the ancient world, in many places even in the world today, the question that you were asking all of the time is, how are the gods feeling today? Uh, Are they angry? Are they anxious? Are they happy? Have they been appeased? And the primary way that you were guessing at how the gods were feeling today was how things were going in your life, both in the natural world and in your personal life. And so if you had experienced a significant amount of loss, then it was within reason in your mind that for some reason unknown to you, the gods must be angry today. Or if your crops had failed and there hadn't been enough rain or if it was too cold, then the gods must be upset for some reason. And you weren't ever really sure what the reason was. On your best days, you were just guessing at why they were angry. But what you did know is what you needed to do about it. You may not know what you had done, but you knew what you needed to do. And what you needed to do was offer a sacrifice, typically a bloody sacrifice and more often than not possibly a human sacrifice to appease the gods to make them happy again and your hope was that they would accept your sacrifice and then they would become happy all over it was like Adderall for the gods right that they were in a really bad mood but if I gave them this to appease them then they could switch over and now they would be in a really good Mood. And what became clear quickly in the scriptures is that this God of Abraham and this God of Isaac and this God of Jacob, this God was different. And here's why. He didn't require a bloody sacrifice to make himself happy. He required it to make them aware. He required it to make them aware of the existence of evil in the world and God's hatred for evil in the world. And more importantly, the penalty of sin is costly. It's no small thing. 
in any measure to be added. And in God's commitment to eradicate evil in the world, rebellion is met with destruction. And probably one of the most vivid pictures of propitiation is found in the Exodus account. This moment when it finally arrives that God is going to deliver the nation of Israel from hundreds and hundreds of years of severe persecution and slavery. They have been crying out to God, and the moment has arrived in which God is going to deliver them. And so God entreats Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, to release Israel of his own accord. Really what he's entreating Pharaoh to do is join the living God in his rescue plan for the nation of Israel. And Pharaoh resists, and Pharaoh resists, and Pharaoh resists. And there's a series of plagues that are brought on the nation of Egypt. And in the midst of all of that, the nation of Israel is covered over by God and protected during those times. Ultimately, it becomes abundantly clear that Pharaoh is not going to give in. And so the 10th and the final plague is going to come upon the nation of Egypt. But in this particular case, God gives a command to the children of Israel, and the command has directly to do with whether or not this particular plague will affect their households also. And so here is what he commands them through Moses in Exodus 12, verse 21. Moses called all the elders of Israel together and said to them, Go pick out a lamb or a young goat from each of your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Drain the blood into a basin, then take a bundle of hyssop branches and dip it into the blood. Brush the hyssop across the top and sides of the door frames of your houses, and no one may go out through the door until morning, for the Lord will pass through the land to strike down the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, the Lord will pass over your home. He will not permit his death angel to enter your house and strike you down. I want you to take an animal, a young lamb or a young goat. I want you to offer it as a sacrifice. Let the blood be spilled out. I want you to eat the whole thing in your home in that evening. But I want you to take some of the blood and I want you to put it over the doorframe of your house. And when I see the blood over the doorframes of your house, then I will pass over you. You will be covered by the blood. They will be delivered from the land of Egypt. And in really short order, God is going to give them um, his law. And his law is the appropriate requirements for when um, his commands are broken. They involve these particular sacrifices. And here's what's different. Israel isn't left to simply guess at what God expects anymore. He's actually been a abundantly clear with them. If you want a thrilling read, just make your way through Leviticus numbers, right? Uh, Like he's really painfully clear with them on his expectations. But he knows that they're just like us. The ability to keep the law of God, which is part of the point, is impossible. And he knows that they need what we will need, and that is covering. And so in Leviticus 16, he gives this beautiful portrait of propitiation. 
It's a day called the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement begins like this. The priest and the priest's sons, everyone who's going to be involved in the ceremonies that day, they all have to be purified as well because they're not pure. They're not holy. And so they get up in the morning and they offer a bull as a sacrifice for themselves. And they are covered by the blood and purified so that they could serve the nation of Israel. And here's how the Day of Atonement goes. They bring two young goats without blemish who are male, and they bring them to the priest, and they're going to cast lots because each of them is going to serve a different purpose for the nation of Israel. And when they cast lots for them, one of them is going to become the sacrificial goat. Poor guy, that's bad news. That was for free. And the other one is going to be known as the scapegoat. You've heard that term before. And then the priest is going to perform almost an identical rite over each of the goats. He's going to lay his hands on the head of the goat, and he's going to symbolically place all the sins of the nation of Israel in this one moment, on this one day, on the head of this one goat. And he's going to place all the sins of the nation on that goat, and then they're going to slit its throat, and they're going to drain the blood into a basin, and they're going to take that blood, and they're going to spit Sprinkle it on the congregation. You didn't want to be on the front row. They're going to put it on the ear and the thumb and the toe of the priest. And then they're going to take it into the Holy of Holies. They're going to put it on the mercy seat. I mean, there's blood everywhere by the time it's all said and done. And then the priest is going to come back to this other goat. And he's going to do the exact same thing. He's going to place his hands on the head of the goat. And he's going to place all the sins of the nation on the head of that goat. And then another priest is going to take this goat and lead it, and the scriptures just say, a great distance away from the camp. And what this symbolized for the nation of Israel is not only have your sins been covered by the blood, but you have also been separated from them. It was this beautiful, full picture of redemption and atonement. It was this beautiful picture of you are not only covered by the blood, but you have been separated from your sin. In fact, the story goes in antiquity that at one point they led the goat a great ways out into the wilderness, let it go, and a few days later it wandered back into camp and they freaked out. Our sins are back upon us. So from then on in Israel, they led the goat a great distance outside of the camp, and someone pushed it off of a cliff. So it never came back into camp again, right? They didn't want their sins back in the camp with them. It felt good to be separated from your sin. Maybe you're starting to pick up the picture that's being laid out. But when the psalmist writes in Psalm 103, verse 10, he says this, and he does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve for his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's what he's talking about. Not only have they been covered, but we have been separated from them. Which brings me to Mother May I. I made the critical error in judgment. Uh, I guess it was last Sunday. I did it in first service. We have three services at the Wasilla campus. So I get to correct things sometimes, which is a great feeling, you know, when my mom texts me and says, hey, that's not theologically correct, and then I can correct it in the second service. And 
that congregation gets to grow and mature. Um, uh, you think I'm kidding. Um, uh, but I, I made the critical error in judgment. The girls were sick and they had stayed at home and I just assumed Kitri hears me talk enough that she wasn't watching online, but they were. Kitri and the girls were watching online and I bashed one of their favorite games. In fact, they love playing this game and they're not in here. I hate this game. It's the game Mother May I. Ever, ever played it? Like the game just doesn't make any sense to me. Mother May I, and then you ask a question, and mother says yes or no, and then you can do it or not. And, and there's like several versions of it. None of them make any sense. It doesn't seem any fun. Like Simon Says, that's a great game. You played Simon Says? Simon Says, raise your right hand up in the air. You're all out already. Come on. Simon Says, raise your right hand. <laughs> do this. It's this one. Simon Says, raise your right hand up in the air. Randy Weiser won't do it. Raise your right hand up in the air. Simon says, raise your left hand up in the air. So both hands should be in there. You're doing good so far. Um, uh, Simon says, put your left hand down. Put your right hand down. Oh, see, some of you already went out. Simon didn't say. It's so much easier than mother may I. Um, uh, But in order to redeem myself, as I've been thinking about this whole process, uh, really when, when you think about it, Jesus is not playing um, Simon Says with his father. He's actually playing Father May I. See, uh, I would say it this way. The father did not punish his son to appease his own wrath. He permitted his son to freely make atonement for our sins. And how you view the character of God and the intentions of God really matters to people's ability to hear the message of the gospel. God didn't punish his son in order to appease his own wrath. He permitted his son to freely make atonement for our sins. And Jesus is very clear on this point in John chapter 10, verse 17. For this reason, Jesus speaking, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is not a father who's getting his wrath appeased through some joy of punishing and torturing his own son. This is a father and a son who have come to agreement and a son who is saying, may I be permitted to be the one to cover and carry away their sin on their behalf. It's no accident that this is the first of the four pictures of salvation because without this one you don't actually get the rest. This must be dealt with first in the message of the gospel because without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. I love how Colossians 2 describes this moment of propitiation or covering. And and I love how it describes it in particular in the place that victory is won. Because if you grew up in the church, well, everybody knows Good Friday isn't victory day. 
Easter Sunday is. That's not what Colossians 2 says. Colossians 2, verse 13 through 15. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them. Where? On the cross. In fact, we're told if the principalities and powers had known what was going to happen on the cross, they would have never crucified the Son of God. Because in that moment, in the shedding of the blood of the Lamb, Jesus is not only the one who covers over all sin for all time, making it already paid for, but he also carries away the sin of the world. 1 John 2, 2, Jesus himself is the sacrifice that atones, or the word that's actually used there, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only our sins, but for the sins of all of Homer. That puts it in a little better context, right, than the whole world, because we use the whole world language a lot, but you know the people who live around here. All sin for all time has actually already been covered by the blood of the Lamb. And the invitation is actually to come under that covering. Which brings me to baby, it's cold outside. Baby, it's cold outside. It has been bitter cold up in Anchorage. And in the valley, this has been one of the longer cold snaps that we've had in a while. But it's especially cold, as you can imagine, for the homeless community. It's a real challenge for those who have no place to go or no place to live. But imagine for a moment that the Hilton or the Captain Cook um, opened up their rooms to the homeless free of charge. You need a place to stay? move into one of our rooms in the hotel. Now, there are some guidelines, of course. You, you can't murder other people in the hotel. You can't shoot up heroin in your rooms. You can't jump out of the windows onto mattresses that you stacked up on the ground just for fun. Like, there's just the normal stuff that you can't do if you're going to take up residence here. And, and I would say someone would be a fool in this kind of weather to not take advantage of that offer, right? I mean, the offer to be brought in and sheltered from the wrath of winter. Because there's a law of thermodynamics at work, and the cold air is attempting to take all the warm air out of your body and equalize them both, which means you will die, uh, right? That, that the invitation to move into one of the hotel rooms just seems like a no-brainer to me. What would really be astounding is that people would choose to stay out in the cold rather than take up residence in the shelter. In fact, I was thinking about this the other day, and I'll drink some more of my chocolate water. My very first surfing experience, since I grew up in Oklahoma, which is a landlocked state and a great place to be from, 
was right here in Homer. Many of you know Flip and Marguerite Felton, their son Daniel Felton invited me to go surfing. I should have known better because he had also injured me in a snowboarding episode, my first snowboarding experience, but Daniel invited me to go surfing. What I had for a wetsuit was like the old neoprene, you know, the seven mil that you actually couldn't bend any of your limbs in, you know, so paddling is a real challenge like this, but had lots of flotation. Had an old zipper on it, but I thought it's thick. It's cold outside. This should work. We headed out to the spit. It's the middle of winter. It's like temperatures that it is right now. And we had what we call storm surf or the washing machine was rolling in. And, uh, and so we got out of Daniel's truck, took the boards, went down, jumped in the water, paddled out, and just began living the surfer's dream. I don't know how long it was, but it hadn't been very long. And suddenly the zipper on my wetsuit blew open. You talk about a rush. <laughs> like I've, I've had to be rescued a couple of times from the anger of the ocean, a few times on the Humboldt Herald. Uh, but in this moment, I thought I might not make it back up to the truck. Like I have freezing cold water just rushing into every nook and cranny like all my pores and <laughs> like I honestly by the time I got up to the truck thought I was about to die and Dan Daniel was gonna have to give me mouth to mouth or something and that would have made it into the papers and I would have never heard the end of that either but it's interesting because the ocean wasn't trying to kill me right it's just the reality of being exposed to the wrath of the sea in that moment. In John chapter 3, verse 36, here's how the wrath of God is described and shelter from it is described. Whoever, can you just say whoever? Okay, good. Two people over here did and my wife. Um, whoever. That's like, Whoever, this is one of the whosoevers in the scriptures. Like, this is for anybody. Everybody can get in on this deal. Like, the rooms are open if you need a place to stay. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You, you could come in under the umbrella. You could take up residence in the room. The invitation is for everybody. It's not withheld from anyone. Come in. Be covered. Get the shelter and the protection that you need. Whosoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And this is really important because I think our understanding of the nature of God and what he is like in his character is at stake in the way we describe this. The amazing thing to me isn't that God's wrath will not be satisfied until evil is nullified. I hope he wants evil eradicated from the world. The amazing thing to me is actually that God has offered shelter and in return he's been vilified for it. 
that this God who has fully extended himself, who has made every possible provision to be covered and to be separated from our sin, to be brought into the shelter, out from under his wrath, that instead of glorifying him, he is vilified in the world. And I think some of that is our responsibility because how we describe him matters in the world. Would you stand with us? truth is that on my best days, I will fall short of accurately describing the beauty and the glory and the character of the living God and the message of the greatest news to ever grace this planet. That doesn't mean I'm going to quit trying. And what I discover is the more I get to know about him, the more I discover about his goodness and his grace and his mercy, more passionate I become that others could know it too. And maybe you've heard the story before, maybe you've heard this line before where people say, um, well, there are many ways to get to God. There's no need to narrow it all down to one avenue that you could approach God through multiple different avenues. Many roads lead up the mountain to the living God. And I just want you to consider something for a moment that as Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's down on his knees and he's crying out in this moment of loneliness and isolation and overwhelmed and his disciples are off sleeping on the side and he's crying these words out to the Father. Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there could be another way for people to enter into relationship with you, to come into the shelter and the protection and the provision of all that you have, to come out from under your wrath, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And imagine, because this is what God would be saying if that is true, he would be saying, son, there's gonna be thousands of ways for people to get to me. I just love myself a good crucifixion. What kind of God would that be to allow his own son of his own free will to become the propitiation for our sins and yet he could have provided a thousand other ways. No, God is absolutely certain and Jesus is absolutely convinced that there is no other way to the Father but by him. Jesus, would you grant us the great gift of knowing the heart of the Father, of being able to communicate the intentions of the living God that while we could not know perfectly because you're unfathomable to our own hearts and minds and yet you desire to be known, desire that your glory would be revealed through these imperfect vessels. And Jesus, for those in this room who have resisted coming in out of the weather to the protection and the shelter and the covering that you offer, 
Would you soften our hearts and strengthen our resolve that we could enjoy the gift and the provision that you have offered to your sons and your daughters. Jesus, we love you. We are so grateful for the good news of your gospel. Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church almost every Sunday, and I got to tell you, I have no idea how many times I heard the message of the gospel. Because for the first 20 years of my life, I believed that I had to respond to my sin by appeasing a wrathful God. Galatians 2.21 tells me that if I could achieve righteousness like that, then Christ died for nothing. Through the blood of Jesus, we're offered an open invitation for a direct relationship with God the Father. And furthermore, uh, the events of Christ that Christ did on the cross for us fully and completely uh, shelter and cover over us. Listen, if God has pressed something on your heart today through this message, uh, we have prayer ministry at the back. They're totally uh, willing and ready to pray with you and pray for you. And also just talk to somebody, you know, just that's how it happened for me. You know, I God, all of a sudden I got it. And I just had to talk to somebody. And, he, and the truth hit my heart for the very first time.